Once I realized that, that's when my courses started to change, right? And I started teaching more to the student and less the dogmatic content of the curriculum. I was warned that you're going to probably be caught in avalanches when you're doing snow safety. And I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. No, 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 that's not going to happen. Like, no, no, you, you, you will. <laughs> you will. This is John Littleton, and you are listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Hey, you are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. Your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host for this episode, Sean Zimmerman-Wall. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control. Safety through innovation. With additional sustaining support from Gordini. We keep you outside longer. And OpenSnow. Visit OpenSnow.com to get started with a free trial and enter the discount code AVALANCHEPODCAST at checkout to receive 30% off your first year of OpenSnow All Access. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, they say mountain folks have short memories, which is likely an asset and a liability. While this season may seem like an outlier in my mind, I'm sure that it is not that different from other seasons. Here on February 3rd, we are in the midst of a considerable to high hazard across much of the western U.S., with persistent slab avalanches breaking deep, running far, and generally catching many folks off guard. Add in the atmospheric river events making headlines and things just get weirder. As of this recording, there have been four fatalities in the U.S., with countless direct hits resulting in positive outcomes, meaning people were carried and buried, but not killed. Several of those caught and who were fortunate enough to survive are avalanche professionals, which should concern everyone. It has made me think about an ISSW paper put out by Green, Jameson, and Logan in 2014 entitled Fatal Occupational Injuries of Avalanche Workers in North America. The research presented found that being an avalanche professional is about as dangerous a job as one can do in the U.S. and Canada right up there with logging and mining. In addition to the aforementioned avalanche involvements, there was a tragic aviation accident in Canada that recently claimed the lives of four people. A veteran pilot, a rising star in the guiding community, and two guests of the operation. The collective trauma that members of the avalanche community experience after these events is not to be understated. If you or someone you are close to is struggling to carry on, having repetitive thoughts about the what-ifs, or showing signs of depression, please take action. The American Avalanche Association's Resilience Project has money and provides lists of resources for those members needing assistance. It is a courageous act to ask for help, and as someone who has benefited from mental health professionals' insights and counseling, I implore you to take the first step on this path to resilience and recovery. Like understanding the nuances of snow and avalanches, the road to wellness is a lifelong journey. 
Another way to process being party to avalanche accidents in the workplace is to add a report to avalanchenearmiss.org. This project is patterned after a similar effort in the firefighter and law enforcement communities. Nationalnearmiss.org has run successful near-miss data collection and dissemination efforts in these communities for many years. Avalanchenearmiss.org is based on their work and built with their guidance. The database and submission form are designed to collect enough information to help others understand the near-miss, help institutions and researchers look for trends, and make it as easy as possible for people to submit a report. Avalanchenearmiss.org is a project of Avalanche Worker Safety, a not-for-profit group that seeks to increase the level of safety in snow and avalanche operations by forming partnerships and providing pathways to share information. Let's do what we can to not let our short memories get the better of us out there. Thanks for hearing me out on that one, y'all. Are you an industry professional looking for a quick and easy way to access pro deals so that you can get the gear to get the job done? The IPA Collective is built for snow professionals with some of the world's best brands available in the program, including the North Face, Osprey, Fisher Skis, Fly Low, Smith Optics, Heli Hansen, and many more. They have over 90 brands that will help you be better equipped for your winter work while keeping you comfortable and stylish 24-7. Getting connected with the IPA Collective is a simple process that just involves a short registration form at ipacollective.com and then send in your credentials and you'll be good to go. The IPA Collective is the only pro program that connects you directly with the brand so this means no goofing around with third-party providers. This direct relationship allows you better product availability and faster shipping. The IPA staff works seven days a week to ensure your application is reviewed and approved quickly so that you get the gear you need to keep you working and playing in the snow. Find out more at www.ipacollective.com. Okay, moving into the real reason you came our interview with John Littleton. John works as a guide and avalanche safety educator in the Sierra, and I am grateful to know him. Regardless of your background or origin story in this business, I bet you will see some of yourself in John's reflection and storytelling. So turn the volume up as we lift off with John in three, two, one. Welcome everyone. It's a little bit of a gray November day here. And I'm joined here in the studio by John Littleton. Thanks for coming uh, to us digitally here, John. It's really nice to see your face. And uh, how's your winter going so far? Well, thanks for having me, Sean. I appreciate that. Well, winter uh, here in the Sierra Nevada, uh, specifically the Lake Tahoe area, uh, has not started yet. So my skies are definitely uh, gray like yours, but I think you're going to get a little bit more. Uh, precipitation out of this uh, upcoming storm uh, in the next few hours or so. So, fingers crossed. Maybe the forecasters are are uh, off their game and we get a sneaker. We'll see. Yeah, right on. Yeah, hopefully so. And uh, we uh, appreciate you taking some time out of your day here as you prep for your season to uh, talk to us and and have you engage with the the podcast. So. As we get started here, as we often do, you know, we want to get to know a little bit more about the the person behind the Gore-Tex, so to speak. So, John, 
why don't you kind of start us off and, and tell us a little bit more about who you are and um, give our listeners a little preview into your life. Active ski guide and avalanche safety instructor uh, here in the Lake Tahoe area, Sierra Nevada, uh, California mountains. Been doing this for about 20 plus years now, uh, working in the snow world. Uh, I'm originally from Chicago, and I'm going to make a point. I am from the south side. I am from the city. Uh, for those folks that will be listening to this who are from the city of Chicago, they understand the importance of making that distinction uh, from being in the city. Um, I get the curious curiosity always happens, always hits guests and clients and fellow colleagues, you know, throughout the, the years I've been doing this, I get the question always, um, like, how did I get into the sport of, of sliding down snow, sliding down mountains? And I just was a lucky kid. Uh, my folks, um, introduced me to skiing when I was about like six, I'm 53 right now. So I'll let folks that are good with math kind of do that subtraction. Um, and it just stuck. Um, after college, I went in the Navy, uh, military and, uh, that brought me out to California and I was in and out of skiing when I was in college and I was in the military, but not very much. I definitely missed those kind of nineties, that transition of, of skiing from the seventies to the nineties. I missed it. And I missed all the things that were occurring, uh, in the mountains at that time. And it wasn't until the early two thousands when I just kind of saw that things, it, I got back into to skiing, uh, as a, as a passion, I should say. And then that was the start of me, um, deciding that I wanted to make some type of career out of working in the mountains. Uh, after the military, I was managing motorcycle dealerships and just, just kind of getting by and, um, was looking for something that was a little bit more fulfilling yeah, and lo and behold, it was back to the roots of what it made me feel really, really fun. Well, it was really, really fun when I was a little kid. It was skiing, sliding down snow. So, and I'm here now talking to you. Yeah, we're honored to have you, John. Um, if I may just recount a little bit of those earlier days, um, kind of your first first time skiing were those mostly in, in hills in the Midwest or did you travel elsewhere? Yeah. Yeah. That's another, that's the other question I get like, yeah, where'd you ski? Yeah. It was always, uh, the hills Midwest. I had, a, I had an uncle who was a engineer. He worked for GM at the time and he got moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan in the like late sixties. And I think they were how I understand the story that they were, they were, building a ski resort putting air quotes up uh in his area and they were looking for investors i think it was timber ridge or boyne or something like that and he went ahead and did that uh just to find something that my cousins and my aunt would be into into doing and um 
he ended up being a phenomenal bump skier, you know, those pro bumps back in the seventies. And then he introduced my mom into the sport. And so, uh, we got into a ski club when I was, yeah, like six or seven years old. And like every winter weekend, we would get on a bus and go to someplace in Wisconsin, someplace in Michigan. And then we would usually do maybe one or two trips uh, out west, the Colorado or Utah, but never California. Yeah, yeah. even until I was in my mid twenties, my association with California was just strictly Baywatch. So, yeah, and lo and behold, yeah, I've been here. I think longer in the mountains than I actually lived in Chicago. Yeah. So, yeah. all right, uh, maybe if you can uh, think back a little bit, you know, what was it like that first time when you saw the Sierra Nevada covered in snow and you actually got to go be up in those mountains? It was, it was, it was awesome. Right. Uh, I was in Southern California. So I was in San Diego. So um, the closest, hate to use the term real mountains, but big mountains, big terrain, right? We're the Eastern Sierras. And a coworker of mine um, convinced me to drive up to uh, to Mammoth. And um, that was eye-opening, right? I had never seen mountains that big before, right? And with a remembrance, like obviously going out to the to Colorado and Utah as a kid, um, I actually seen, I actually saw those mountains, but it, mountains of the same kind of caliber. But it, I didn't have that that ingrained in my memory, you know, to the point where I actually like was able to see, you know, big terrain, you know, and like wow, this is it was it was gorgeous. Now, I love that. Those kinds of memories have a distinct way of sticking in your mind and then driving you to explore further. Um, do you remember what about year that was? That would probably have been late 90s. Yeah, so like maybe 98, 99, some, somewhere around there. Yeah. Yeah, so... You're talking about like a little bit more modern gear, definitely built up ski areas. Um, because like, as you said, you kind of came back into the sport a little bit later after, you know, yeah. career, some time in the Navy and, and some time, um, managing a shop that, uh, that dealt with motorcycles. Do you still ride a motorcycle that is? No, <laughs> not, not, not even, and especially living up here. Like no, like two wheels on the road is not, that's the. I think that's the 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 biggest indicator that you don't live in Tahoe if you're on two wheels on any of the roads. <laughs> Mountain bikes, that that's that's a given. But yeah, two wheels on the road, yeah, not too many locals do that. Fair enough. So yeah. it was more in the the coastal context when you <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. Nice, nice. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you traded those in for, for two planks instead. And, uh, it seems like that's kind of the way you tend to get around the mountains these days is on skis. Yeah, I'm definitely a skier. Um, I have countless 
uh, ski partners and friends that are that are snowboarders. I'm somewhat embarrassed to even admit that I've I've never even put a pair of snowboard boots on. Um, it's just something about the tool that I use uh, that brings me joy, but then also kind of pays the bills. That's just been my focus, just to master that craft and to get it to become as proficient as possible with it as a as a tool as well as recreation. So I just I really just haven't had the time to kind of pursue another downhill sliding sport. One of these days, I'm sure I will. For sure. For sure. I, I think about that often. I, it's a, uh, it's a really fun sport that I'd like to get better at because I love skateboarding, but you know, I could sustain a skateboarding injury in the summer and probably make it back into the winter. Okay. Uh, if I was to, uh, you know, take a risk with a snowboard too often around the mountains here, I, I might be out of work. <laughs> That's, that is also another, I have to admit another caution that I have in terms of just, you know, as I age, I, I'm very um, um, judicious with how I use my body in a physical sense. So I think that's something a lot of us are, are considering, whether we slide around facing sideways or facing forward, or whether we, you know, use a machine underneath us is uh, what is this doing to our bodies? Um, and, and how are we keeping our our personal machines tuned up so that we can keep doing this work because we're putting our bodies up for collateral, so to speak, in, in just about every way. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and that includes our minds and, and the things that we see and the things that we deal with. Um, and I'm glad that those kinds of things are being more recognized now. No, absolutely. So, definitely. so talking a little bit about kind of uh, your, your ascension as a skier, you know, returning to the sport um, and finding this passion in it. Uh, you know, relocating from the, from the beach to the, the mountains, you moved right up to the Tahoe area. Was that kind of your first, your first home outside yeah. of the coast? Yeah, it was, it was, it was directly that. And, um, the, it's kind of started with a movie it's going to sound kind of corny, but it sounded, it started with a movie. I think you're old enough to remember that, um, uh Sylvester Stallone movie uh where he's the rock climber cliffhanger there you go yes. right yeah and i wasn't a rock climber at the time um not too many mountains in southern california uh, nor chicago um but i was always you know attracted to mountains and that machismo of like guys climbing up things, you know, like the movie, the Iger sanction and stuff like that. You know, that was, a, that's what I grew up on. And I always was, was keen to, 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 I was always attracted to that stuff. Um, anyway, uh, that movie had just came out and it was kind of neat, you know, seeing, you know, big burly people climbing up mountains and stuff like that, using shiny bits and tools and stuff. That was cool. And then, um, remember I was, uh, just came out. So I was in the background of my head, but I was in the airport. I think I was going back home to Chicago to visit my mom and I was in the magazine section and it was a powder magazine. Um, so this is, there's anybody in powder magazine that can, that can pick up and get old copies of magazines. I would pay a fortune for this, for this 
issue, but it was the the cover of the magazine were two two guys that had the full kit like Sylvester Stallone had, you know, in that cliffhanger movie, you know, rock climbing harnesses, all bunch of shiny bits and pieces that I didn't know the names of at the time, right? You know, ropes on their shoulders. They also had skis, right? And ski poles and ski boots. And the, 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 the copy of the cover was America's Best Ski Mountaineers. I had never heard of that term before, right? But they look cool. Like, they look like Cliffhanger the movie, but, like, on, like, even more steroids than, what our, than Sylvester Stallone was on. So I picked up the magazine and I devoured it on the airplane. And um, lo and behold, unbeknownst to me, people actually climbed up mountains and skied down mountains. Right? I had been a resort skier my entire life. Um, the idea of going outside of a boundary right was was didn't even it didn't even have a popped in my head as a matter of fact the first time i ever even ducked a rope i was a little kid and it was a pow day at solitude i had never seen pow before and i literally fell and i almost drowned like right out like right out like like a one step off the rope Right, had these little itty bitty, you know, K two skis on. Fell over, and I think it was a ski patroller just like picked me up and <laughs> and placed me on the other side of the rope. And I was like, wow. So anyway, like flash forward, you know, come to find out that these you know humans are actually climbing up mountains, really cool mountains, and skiing down them. Right. So I uh, land. I get back to San Diego. I do some research. And come to find out that in order to be a ski mountaineer, you needed to be a mountaineer. And in order to be a mountaineer, you needed to you know how to climb. So I immediately went to a climbing gym in Southern California, started taking lessons on how to climb. Um, with no true intention of becoming, you know, like a 514 climber, I just wanted I just it was just wanted the skills to be able to sky, ski down mountains. And um then uh I started taking recreation recreational mountain classes from guide companies in California. Uh took a glacier course up in uh Washington. Um and then that's when I actually found um a friend who was the instructor um, of the course and we're still friends now on Facebook and, you know, I've following like the growth of like, his family and stuff, but he was a young guide at the time. And um, we had made plans to go climbing somewhere in Southern California, like later on after that glacier course and, um, we get back to the car after like maybe 10 days or something like that. I forget how long that, that course was. And, uh, he's checking his messages on his phone and he's like, John, I've got some bad news for you. And I'm like, Oh, what's up? You know, who's what's, what's going on? He's like, I can't go climbing with you. 
you know, in SoCal, you know, next month. And I'm like, why, what happened? And he's like, he shows me the phone and he plays this message and he got, he got, uh, uh, the he got the his his gig of his lifetime to guide on Everest, right? And I'm like, just like that. And he's like, just like that. And I'm like, whoa! And here's this guy I just met like ten years ago, doing this awesome career, teaching me how to you know travel on a glacier. Um, he's got a wife, he's got a house, and he was living in Ballard. Seattle at the time, I really happy, you know, and up until that point, I had no idea that that was even a possibility of making, you know, you know, making a, creating a life like that, like in the mountains. Right. And, um, I was, I was a stoke for him and I got back home and I emailed him, uh, like, Hey, do you think I could be a guide? And he was like, absolutely. You know? And, um, cause I was done with selling motorcycles and power sports and stuff like that. I was, was just over it. And I just continued taking classes. And then I just kind of committed, uh, to just getting out of SoCal. And, uh, I moved up, up North to Tahoe. Yeah. Uh, got a job as a ski patroller. I think that's what, some aspiring mountain professionals find themselves work, work themselves into back in the day. I think now it's a little bit different. I think you can, there, the, the barriers of entry into mountain guiding, um, are just as daunting, but they are, you can, because the, I think the, the demand is so high, Entry level guiding um, uh, uh, is more entry level guiding jobs are available for aspiring mountain guides. Uh, I don't think that that was the case. Uh, at least I didn't experience that back in the day. So I uh, became ski patrolling, and you know, honestly, I I thought that ski patrolling would assist myself. I mentioned my age earlier. Um, I started this, this path, this, I'd call it my third career, um, a little bit later in life. And so I've kind of thought I was coming at, at it as a, with a deficit in terms of behind the curve in terms of age. And so I needed to to get that rocket boost of like mountain sense and mountain skills that, you know, if I had started maybe 10, 10 years earlier, 12 early, earlier in life, I would have been able to accumulate those experiences at a more natural pace. Whereas um, starting later, I just needed a boost. And so I thought ski patrolling would give me that, um, that access to, to learning at a faster pace, you know, mountain skills, you know, and, um, I worked at a resort in the South side of the lake, learning how to be a ski patroller. They were the only ski patrol at the time, uh, that I was looking for a job that was actually hiring people who 
did not have any ski patrol experience whatsoever. At the time, the economy wasn't all that great to begin with. Um, and so most patrols, um, as you know, you know, are pretty insular, you know, and, you know, they have a distinct culture and they know exactly what they're looking for. So very seldom at that time, but they, they pull people in with zero experience of having to train them, you know, in the, their way of doing things. But this particular, uh, resort, um, I'm not sure if I could say the word, but to say the name, it was Heavenly Ski Resort in South in South Lake Tahoe. Um, they had a program um, for what they call Never Nevers, you know, and it was like you even your you weren't even hired as a ski patroller. You're hired as a ski patrol trainee, and um, it was funny because uh, that. F- summer and early fall when I sent my application in, I got a, I got a phone, a phone call from like the assistant director and he's like, Hey man, you know, I, I, I like, I like your resume and I like what things that you've done. I'm former Marine and you know, I won't hold that against you. You'd be a former Navy, but that's all right. Uh, but I just want to let you know that, you're not going to be making the same kind of money that you're making now. <laughs> like, yeah, I know, I know. And he says, okay, all right. Well, I look forward to, I think, you know, I think we're going to, you should be a good fit. Um, if you can get up here for the actual physical job interview, that would be great. Um, uh, but you know, we just consider you're good to go for next fall. And I'm like, all right, that's great. So then I took the trip up and in the fall I had to sit down and, um, you're like, great, this is going to work. And uh, I spent about five years there um, learning how to, to to move through the mountains. You know, that's that, that term mountain sense, just acquiring my mountain sense. You know, um, understanding mountain weather, um, uh, using my skis as a tool, not just recreation, right? Um uh, learning all the, you know, the learning the job of, of being a mountain professional. That's where I cut my teeth. You know, some of the best, uh, I think that are in the business. Um, and I'm incredibly grateful for, for that experience, but it, then it wasn't until, um, it was about like five, maybe five years in. Um, and one of my good friends, uh, at the time, who still is at the time, but and also was a mentor of mine, um, Travis Feist. Uh, he had been in the business for a while longer than I had. He had experience working in Colorado. Uh, he worked at um, what was then called Squaw Valley or Palisades. Uh, mountain now um and then he had moved to south lake with his wife to to work and he was working at heavenly and he we had a conversation where he he recognized that that i'd been doing this for what for a while and he said if you're going to be doing this for any longer my recommendation would be to move to a different mountain right and and what he meant by that was it was no uh, wasn't a diss on Heavenly, but 
heavenly. Although, you know, I, that's where I got my, you know, my, I was, became a licensed blaster where I first started, um, going on avalanche routes. It doesn't have a robust as a robust, um, avalanche safety program as some other mountains, some class A, other class A mountains. Uh, so his suggestion was to move to a different mountain and I took his advice and I moved to the North end of the lake and started working, uh, at Palisades. Um, and, uh, that, that first year, uh, that hooked me and he was hundred percent correct. It's a totally different experience. Um, and I worked there for, uh, 12, maybe 15 seasons, I believe. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a, quite a shift. And then obviously, like you said, it hooked you. Um, so there's a couple things you mentioned here in, in this last little bit. And, um, I just want to touch on a couple of them if I may. Um, I, I really appreciated what you said about, uh, you know, your ability to come into a patrol with no experience and they really helped you level up your mountain then and helped you as, uh, providing you the theater to be able to do so along with some incredible folks, I'm sure at the time, um, and probably even some that are still there, uh, kind of, uh, fostering your development. And, uh, I would agree with you that, you know, anyone looking into the, the guiding professions, ski patrolling can be a really robust way to build that mountain sense. Yes. <laughs> Watching snow move and getting intimately familiar with a piece of terrain, um, at the mountain scale. So that's, that's really great that there was a program for you to come in there, um, with the skill set that you had at the time, but now you're transitioned up to North Tahoe. Tell us a little bit about like what that meant for you in your mind and what you had to make as a shift. Um, it was big and I didn't realize how big it was until the, my first snow safety day. Um, My first avalanche, personal avalanche experience was at Heavenly. And um, I was tasked to assess a portion of the mountain. It was called Mount Mott Canyon. Uh, see, we're going to open it. It was op- a, a, available or should be open to the public. Uh, we had just finished doing snow safety on it. And... I went, uh, into the area and, uh, I set off an avalanche and I was petrified. Right. Um, I was scared. I was incredibly scared. Um, snow sliding all around me, um, whole nine yards. Um, and like mind you, you know, I, you know, I had done, uh, two Western Pacific cruises. I've been to, to Somalia at a time where the uh, uh, Somalia in, in Northeast Africa was was not a great place to be in the military. I'll let your your viewers do some research in terms of what was going on back there in the nineties. Back then, um, uh, I had seen some stuff. Right, I had been scared before, but I'd never been that scared before in my life. Right. And, um, I, for a whole bunch of reasons, but then I, I, I walk out of the area. I, I, I stop this assessment. I get out 
And um, I asked my, you know, my friend at the time, Travis, like, what would you do? You know, what would you have done? Would you have kept skiing down there? Would you kept doing it? Like, how would you have processed and continued on with, with this task? And he says, I would just skate out of it, right? Come to find out, right, that the avalanche that I set off was a 0. 0.5, <laughs> right? But I was, yeah, (laughs) right? Um, Yeah, it was barely enough to knock over a house cat, right? But because of my relative experience being so minimal, right, um, I was petrified. I I had no idea, right? So flash forward to your question working at at Squaw, right? I was warned that you're going to probably be caught in avalanches when you're doing snow safety. And I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. No, 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 that's not going to happen. Like, no, no, you, you, you will, <laughs> you will. Right. And I'm like, okay. So very first day snow safety. Um, I get, uh, assigned a, a, senior, a very senior route partner, and we go on a route that was you call like a paper route, right? You're just kind of throwing shots. There's no, there's no hazard. There's no exposure, anything like that. Um, and from my just life experience, I could tell that it was more a a test to see if I just had the experience that I said that I had on my resume. You know, I coming in with, with, with my blasters license and so on and so forth. So I passed that test. So anyway, later on that afternoon, um, I'm in one of the patrol shacks and mind you, I had thrown more shots in that very first morning than I had done in four years working four or five years working at, at heavenly, right? This one morning I threw more shots, right? You know, lit more fuses. It was incredible. So my stoke was really, really high and I'm in this patrol shack and I think I was the only new person in the patrol shack. Everyone else were just uh, a bunch of older patrollers and they're lounging. They're done you know, for the day they're eating their lunch and they're thinking about what they're going to do after work, what bar they're going to go to, whatever. Right. And I'm just stoked. And then the snow safety, uh, supervisor comes in, Will Payton. And he asked, uh, he just threw out this, you know, question. So you may want to help me shoot Silverado. Uh, and I, raise my hand just assuming that i was i was just like no no you're the new guy and i was the only one and like will's like yeah come on meet me uh finish your lunch and meet me uh meet me at um silver opera patrol shack an hour and uh we'll get to it so we go silverado and we go in and will the very first shot we were on this this one shot point called beaver bowl i'm sorry bungee bowl He has me take one stick and he has me uh, hang this shot over this, this one um, uh, convexity and it didn't do anything. Right. 
And he says, hmm, okay. Uh, he says, this is a producer. And mind you, this is right after a very big, it was the first major storm. So the, it was still wild snow in this, in this zone of, of the ski resort. Hadn't been skied, anything. And it's basically backcountry. And so he has me place a, a double that's two shots together. And he's about 200 feet away. If anybody's familiar, folks who are familiar with Bungie Bowl, that's where he's where the tram docking station uh, is. And I'm you know, right at the edge of Bungie Bowl and um, hang the shot. The shot goes off and I can't see the results of the shot, but I can see him and he's jumping up and down, right? Like screaming like, Oh, and I'm looking at my feet. I'm just trying to make sure that like, I am not like <laughs> about to get hosed. And I'm like, what's going on? And he comes over and he just starts actually, he weighs me over and I go over to him and we had just produced a, an avalanche that was about 15 feet in height. Right. And it propagated about 300 feet. Right. Thing was huge. And it went all the way down to the bottom of Silverado. Right. And I had never seen an avalanche like that in my life, only in the movies. Right. And I'm like, wow, this is the first day. This is the very first day. And I'm like, wow. And, um, I'll never forget this because at the end of the day, I'm skiing into the locker room and I'm just still like high from this whole day. And this older guy, Rob Van Dyke, right. Probably the most quietest professionals you'll ever come across in your life. He skis up behind me and he says, you're not at heavenly anymore. Are you? <laughs> and he just walks, and he just walks in the, the patrol shack, you know, HQ and I'm like, yeah, I am not. Right. And, uh, that was the start of it. Yeah. And that was, that was I'm like, yeah, uh, Travis was right. Right. This is, this is the real deal. Definitely is. Well, and that's, that's what makes, uh, a mentor, a mentor, right. They're there at that pivotal point in your career when you're like left or right. And they're like, you need to go left. <laughs> yeah. and- and this is what you do and this is how you progress. And uh, yeah, to, to go into a program like they had, like they have at that ski area and, and to watch it grow, you know, I've, I've spent a little time there, um, yeah. on patrol exchange actually yeah. between there and, and Alpine. Um, and yeah, when you get to see that when it's, you know, right off the crest of the, the Sierras, you get to see the kind of weather events that come through there, particularly for those of you who remember last year, how much. <laughs> how much snow can really fall out of the sky um, and then what the wind can do to it. So that sounds like it was a really transformative experience there in your, in, in your career path and in your journey forward. Um, And to be able to then spend so many more years there continuing to watch snow move and getting to like calibrate your mountain sense, even, even greater, that's really powerful. And, uh, you know, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again here on record, which is that I think that some of the most uh, attuned mountain professionals are those people who've spent time as a ski patroller. 
Wow. Okay. So we are in the same boat, my friend. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I, 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 I'm very selective of when, and when, when I express that opinion, um, for fear that I don't want to offend anybody who chose a different path than, than I did, or that perhaps that we did. But I truly believe that there's something to be said for the repetition that you get, uh, the feedback loop that you could create, right? Uh, with taking, you know, a constant two pound explosive, right? And putting it on a slope and seeing what the results are, right? Um, it, the, the knowledge that you get, uh, that I feel that I gained, um, I'm I'm sure I'm wrong, you know. I'm in terms of like I'm sure it can be replicated and has been replicated and acquired, because um, you and I both know some 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 real uh, badasses uh, that I look that we both look up to in our field. But um, for me, it was just invaluable, right? and I wouldn't uh, good the good times. And the bad times, um, uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything else. It was it's what made me, yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah. I would agree. Um, and the, the the team building that comes along with that, and the way that you get really comfortable with other people, it it allows you to also take something away from that that's a little bit less tangible. But it, I I feel like, and I've been thinking about this a lot, like that team environment. And, and the camaraderie you build with it, it, it puts you at like a certain level of ease to where you can be more, you can listen deeper to what the mountains are telling you. Whereas, you know, working as a mountain guide, you're often alone. Maybe you have a, a co-guide um, who you work with sometimes, but not all the time, but you've got this group of clients who you really are building rapport with. Maybe they're people you've skied with for a decade, but not at the same uh, repetition level, like you said. So just having that sense of, uh, of ease that like you've got somebody there with you who knows what's going on. They also know this place to some degree. Maybe you're the mentor now and they're the, 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 the trainee um, and you're the route leader, but it allows you to tune your senses into the mountain in a different way when you're in that kind of environment. And, and that's the other, the other reason I I'm such an advocate for people to have tried ski patrolling for a little while is that it gives you that ability to listen in a different way. Um, and then when you transcend, if you go into mountain guiding or forecasting, you have that as like a little bit of a knowledge base. Um, and it makes you even, uh, even more advanced at those, you know, other skills. When I teach, when I teach avalanche courses or just, you know, just having conversations with junior guides or junior, uh, course instructors, I, I refer to it as the, the soft skills, you know, um, that I think that you pick up in jobs like, like patrolling or, you know, where you, you learn how to work with, with, with groups of people, you know, that come from all different backgrounds and, and, and belief systems and the whole nine yards and you're tasked with, you know, a certain set of problems, uh, on a daily basis, you know, and the idea is just to make sure that, um, everybody's safe 
right? And everybody gets home uh, at the end of the day, you know? And, um, but there are skills that, that are, are needed to, to accomplish that, right? And then during the course of your tenure in that profession, you learn those skills, you know? And ideally, you perfect them, you know, to the point where um, yeah, you are, are comfortable, um, you never master them, you know. Uh, I think that the idea is that you just can always get better. I think I had a, I had a, uh, a coworker once that he was he was less a snow safety person and more of a medical uh, geek and, in the in the ski patrol world. And you know, it's just you know, the minute that you think that you did a, a did a a patient interaction perfectly is the day that you should stop this job there yeah, there's always something that you could do better you know and i think you know the same mindset happens or applies to doing snow safety uh taking a client out backcountry skiing teaching avalanche course like it's, it's, it's always be trying to like ask yourself like okay that was good. That was good. That was good. But like, how can I make it a little bit better? You know, um, that's been my driving kind of philosophy. It's been kind of keeping me, you know, in this, you know, me- and mentally, you know, for as long as it has been. Yeah. You know. Would you say that that, that kind of mentality is something that that you had from the onset? Um, because you did mention you, you came into the profession a little later in life where you kind of have those reflective skills and practices already because you're, you're just, you know, you're more mature, uh, for lack of a better term, um, coming into it. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, I was very purposeful, um, and with my decision to pursue a, a, a career or life in the mountains. Right. I knew that. Um, I always knew that I wanted to do something adventure based. Um, however, I did not know what that meant. Um, growing up as a kid, I didn't have the luxury of of the internet, uh, you know, just social media, where I could, you know. I could see the world in a broader sense uh, that uh, individuals now can. So I have very limited kind of scope, but I knew it. I mean, that's the reason why I went in the the Navy was, you know, uh, know, I had a, I call it delusions of grandeur, right? I wanted to be a frog man, right? Uh, And the reason being was just because it was just look like adventure. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a sense of patriotic duty it wasn't uh um uh, uh a sense of i want to be in the military specifically per se right it was just like they just do really cool stuff you know they jump out of airplanes they go scuba diving and they go like shooting guns and stuff i mean they, you know that's cool. You know, it wasn't until when like, okay, well, we do that kind of stuff. We were shooting guns at people. <laughs> that's when 
things kind of, you know, um, came to, to realization that that really was not the adventure that I was looking for. Right. And so it wasn't until, um, I made the decision, uh, to, to become a mom professional, um, that, that I had, I had some specific goals in mind, you know, and, um, but not necessarily objectives. Like I want to be this, or I want to be that is just, I just wanted to do it. If that makes any sense. Yeah. You know, I just wanted to be in it. I didn't know what in it was. I just wanted to just, just to, I just wanted adventure, you know, you know, for, I want to be that guy on the magazine cover. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Right. And so maybe uh, a little, a little bit more about like the experiential component of it, a little less about like having to just like identify with that thing solely, but wanting to get out there and like do this and, and, and be purposeful about it. I loved what you said there a few minutes ago about you, you had this purposeful intention, you had goals, but not necessarily objectives. And you've let some of it just kind of organically evolve and you've been given some guidance. I mean, you mentioned Travis before. He's also been instrumental in in the career path that I've taken over the years since since I met him on my level three. Um, and so, as as you've evolved your practice and and moved into these other roles that you've alluded to here, you, you did say you know um, you know avalanche safety educator. Um, how how have you improved your craft as an educator over the years? not only just taking the mountain sense element of it, but like being able to be an effective conveyor of information. Uh, thanks for asking me that question. Cause I was definitely thinking about this, this topic um, leading up to, to today. Because it was, it has been a path, right? As a matter of fact, I would, I would probably, no, not probably. I would refund anybody who took an avalanche course for me when I first started, right? Because they're because <laughs> they're they're totally different now, right? Um, I when I first started, I I understood the curriculum that I was teaching, um, but I didn't really understand the subcontext of why I was teaching these teaching the, the subject that makes any sense. Right. I knew everything that I could answer any question about, you know, avalanches and rescue so forth. But, but why am I teaching it to, to this person who showed up? this class on Friday, Friday morning and hang out with me for three days. And it wasn't until, you know, a few years in, and I kind of had that epiphany that, you know, these people that I'm teaching this often nuanced topic to, um, were just like me, right. They're just like me 
on that snow safety route at Heavenly, petrified when I released a 0.5 avalanche. Right? And they're scared, right? You know, and and rightfully so, because they have no relative experience as to what it is to be outside of the ski area boundary, right? They're in this course because we've done a really good job in marketing, you know, get the gear, get the education, you know. And so they're they're following, they're checking the boxes, they're getting the education, right? So it was my job to, you know, to, to educate them. So it was when I... Once I realized that, that's when my courses started to change, right? And I started teaching more to the student and less the dogmatic content of the curriculum, right? They're still checking the boxes in terms of all the learning outcomes, uh, but I'm addressing what I think are the most important things of of backcountry skiing for a novice getting into it is that that decision making process, right? And when those decisions actually start, they don't start when you're about to jump into the line. It starts that Monday, the week prior to you and your buddy showing up, you know, at your ski lease, and you're going backcountry skiing on Saturday. You know, like who's going, who's getting, who's getting the text, who's getting the invite, you know, uh, what's our objective. Right. Um, and so that, that's definitely changed. Right. And so, um, I would say that I teach more to the soft skills, the humor interaction, communication skills of backcountry travel for, for individuals, I focus a lot on that because um, I think that the the hard skills, i.e., you know, identifying layers in the snowpack, um, I still go over that in any of my avalanche courses, but less focus on the size of snow grains and more cohe- identifying cohesive snow versus non-cohesive snow, right? And which one's on top is cohesive snow on top of non-cohesive snow. That's bad. Non-cohesive snow over cohesive snow. What's that? And hopefully everyone says a pow day. Right. And so, and when they do say that, that's what I know I got them. Right. And so that's, that's been my, my, my focus in terms of like how I, how I program, you know, an avalanche, a recreate a recreational. I should point that out and make that very specific. A recreational avalanche course, a level sure. one course. Yeah, and my fault. and so so jumping a little bit ahead here, but maybe you were getting there. Is you're also an educator of educators, you know? And so yep. thinking about how how do you adapt that now, even into that like more meta level when you're teaching these folks who are going to go and do just that and need to focus on that student. Like, what is that process like for you as an instructor trainer? I, 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 I try to get my participants in, in, in those courses, those future avalanche instructors to, 
to reflect on what got them into sliding on snow. Right. Yeah. Uh, like, like that, that very first day, you know, of, of being in the mountains, being, take that back, being an avalanche terrain. Right. And how did that make you feel? Right. Um, were you excited? Were you scared? You know, were a little bit of both. Right. Um, and to have them reflect on those, on those, those instances, because those are going to be the, exactly the same feelings that your, your level one, level one students come in to your courses with, you know, all the anxiety, right? Am I, do I have the right gear? Uh, am I fit enough? You know, am I too old? Right. Is everybody in this, I'm 50 years old and all these other kids are 20, 20 years old. Right. You know, am I going to be able to keep up? Right. You know, all of that anxiety, right. As an instructor, you, you should expect your students to have, and you should have some tools to alleviate that, that anxiety so that all of your, all of your students get the best and the most out of that experience. Cause you only have very, only have a few hours with you, right? They got a weekend basically, right? So you got to get through their barriers, right? That they've naturally set up to protect themselves uh, physically and emotionally to, in order for you to educate them. Right. So that's been, that's my focus is, is brainstorming, uh, strategies to to get future instructors into the door, so to speak, that doorway, you know, uh, of of level one students, like so that you can educate them to the fullest, right? You're not, you know, in other words, it's not a constant constant battle, right? That should be the ideal, right? Or at least that's my ideal, you know, goal. Yeah, it's a it's a good ideal to to strive for, and yeah, I've I've often thought about you know how do we in those recreational settings identify with the student and and where they're coming from and what their motivations are um, when we're training instructors to to kind of do the same, um, and then you know using similar philosophies when approaching a professional student, um, I, I find that the the difference is often the support system that a professional has behind them and, and giving them um, the tools to leverage that support system to maximum effect. And what I mean by that is you have the skills to get through all of these different observations. You might have an operational team that you can lean into and that there's going to be people with various specializations to, to help you get through things. Um, you're, you're seldom making these decisions in a, in a vacuum, you have other people to really bounce ideas off of. And so, you know, we do take that same concept and apply it in like the teamwork side of things in the avalanche risk management world um, of recreational users, I mean. Um, but this idea of a professional user having a, a, a little bit higher level of support and also um, additional tools at their disposal, particularly if, you know, we're talking about the aforementioned ski patroller um, or, or, or maybe even highway forecaster who has, you know, munitions 
to throw at the mountainside to test their hypothesis. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and it's really been cool to come into avalanche education. I'm speaking for myself now at a time when there's such a sea change of, of thought process behind it. Cause you know, I, I joined up uh, after taking a level three course in 2015 and moving into being a, an instructor um, and then a course leader shortly thereafter and, and seeing the evolution of, of curriculum packages and the way that we approach um, recreational users, then thinking about like the, the pro rec split as it's been known, you know, the, the divergence of the recreational and the professional track here in the United States. Um, and then seeing how that's even now getting to a point now where there's like further areas for improvement, um, you know, six seasons into that split. Yeah. And, it, you know, I'm wondering, John, here as, as we're coming through our hour, you know, are there any uh, resources you're leaning into right now or like books you've read, things you've listened to or seen that, you know, are, are helping you think again or, or re-examine some of your, your methodologies? Um, the most recent book, uh, that I finished that pertains to kind of like the topics that we're talking about, um, uh, has nothing to do with avalanches, uh, but it has to do with mountains. Uh, Steve house, uh, he wrote this book, uh, it's a beyond the mountains. Is that? Yeah. Okay. I look at my bookshelf. Yeah. And it's a, it's the, the book starts off with him accepting, uh, the PLA Dior, uh, you know, the, the highest honor for, you know, achievement for, for every year for an incredible mountaineering, uh, objective accomplished. He got that and, but he, and he's stoked he's in his hotel room and then he starts to just reflect on like how he got there. Right. And basically the book is this, it chronicles how he found the right partner to do, to accomplish that goal. Right. And I think it's beautiful. I, 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 I think I almost was tearing up at the end of this book because it was kind of, exactly how I feel about, about partnerships in the mountains and like how they're incredibly valuable. Um, and so important that you have to cherish them. Like, you know, they're, they're family members, you know, and he goes through all of these different partners, 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 because he has this goal, right. And he knows what he needs to do to, to get to this goal, Right. But he's just trying to find the right partner. Right. This person's got the right physicality, but we just don't jive together. This person's got their, their, we jive together, but they don't have the physicality. Right. This person doesn't have the same lifestyle that I do, the availability of time and travel, so on and so forth. Right. And so, um, I, going back to like how I teach avalanche courses, I'd stress that those are the skills that uh, my students should be focusing on and, and, and trying to nurture. I mean, you can get on YouTube and, and find a plethora of videos and examples of um, remote triggered avalanches. Right. But, um, 
learning how to foster relationships in the mountains is 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 not as cut and dry right so that would be um that's just some that's definitely something that that i have um uh read and reread i think i reread it almost beginning of every season beyond the mountains that's that's definitely yeah. Um, I have started another mount, another book. Um, I forget the name of the author, but it's basically it's called entitled Teaching College. Right. Um, actually there's Teaching Community College. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now and I'm trying to find it. It's so it's but yeah, I think it's teaching teaching college, teaching teaching community college. I can't yeah, it's teaching community college, right? And basically the gist, and this is definitely for aspiring avalanche uh instructors um on and how the differences of a community college teacher versus say a standard four-year college instructor and the 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 task that a community college instructor has is 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 far greater in terms of the instructional uh, obligation, right? Um, and I think that uh, that holds true uh, with teaching avalanche courses. We have a very short period of time. We have generally a very diverse um, group of participants from ages, backgrounds, sexes, Right, and it's our job to 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 present uh, this information, you know, in a in an entertaining as well as uh, educational, informative manner, because uh, ultimately we were trying to save lives through through this education. Um, so that's a shout out to Josh Kling, another area instructor that you and I both know. He recommended that book a couple of years ago. So apparently. right on. That's, that's two good resources to, to dive into a little bit on uh, some of the less than stellar snow days this year we might find ourselves uh, embarking on. And I, I just really appreciate that John and, and, and your, uh, your kind of mindset um, really resonates with me. And I think will with a lot of our listeners out there. So you know, kudos to you for, you know, cultivating that over time and being very intentional and purposeful. I think that that is the, the true embodiment of a professional. So thank you, John, for being here today. John, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for uh, having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening, y'all. We are honored to be able to bring you these long format interviews and dig into concepts that make us think. In addition to the work we are doing here, you should definitely tune in to the other great podcasts making a splash out there in the Avalanche Patch. A couple of recent faves include the Snowbrains podcast episode where Miles interviews Harlan Shepard of Washington State's Department of Transportation. And the Salt Lake Snowcast, where Nick interviews Cody Hughes and Sam Cohen after a close call that Sam experienced here in the Wasatch. It is great that more folks are taking the baton and running with their ideas to raise us all up truly takes a village. Today's music was composed by Ketza. Find more beats to inspire your intellectual curiosity at ketza.uk. Artwork for our show is created by Mike T. Check out his website and find artwork for your own project at Mike, 
ltea.com. This episode was produced by yours truly with constant support from Cam, Caleb, and Wes. Thanks, fellas. And for those of you out in the social spheres, check us out on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Make sure whichever platform you're listening to us on that you subscribe, rate, and review. And make sure you tell a friend, a co-worker, tell your mom, but spread the word. And we love feedback, so please shoot us an email at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com telling us what you liked, what you didn't like, or what you want to see in the future. As we get through this short month, we'll have some more episodes coming your way, and I'm taking off for the high mountains of France. It'll be my first trip to Chamonix, and I look forward to telling you a little bit more about that story on a future episode. As always, take care out there, and maintain your ability to be surprised. Thank you.